China is an enormous country with a very long history, but set against the void of space and depth of time, isn't it just a speck? And what about you, listener? You're even less than a speck, aren't you? And me? I'm just the voice in your ear, driving you slowly but surely to the brink of insanity. But it's not all bad, there's another voice with me. It's Dylan Levi King, former guest in the show, who's returning to talk to me about some very interesting translated Chinese fiction. It's fiction from the internet, and it's written in the style of H.P. Lovecraft short stories, and it is The Flock of Bahui. So I'm really excited to talk about it. First off, two quick disclaimers. In recording the interview, it seems that uh, Zoom was getting the audio from my laptop's mic and not my proper USB mic that I'm using right now. So my voice sounds a bit fuzzy. That's twice that's happened quite recently. If it were to happen a third time, I'd just have to quit the show. Three strikes and you're out. But I don't think it will be happening. I've got myself a nice new laptop and uh, it seems to be much better at recognizing the microphones and whatnot. But I am going to make extra sure that it doesn't happen again because it annoys me a lot and it, I imagine it probably annoys some of you. So yeah, that's the first disclaimer. Uh, second one is I do quite a lot of, um, I'm not going to say talking out my, my bum hole, I will say shower thoughtification. I do a lot of shower thoughtification in this episode, so if you hear me um, badly misrepresenting, for example, the history of the Shang dynasty, and I, I really think that um, that's, <laughs> that's the most dubious part of the episode when I'm kind of thinking aloud about um, stuff I only half understand. Uh, if anything like that jumps out at you and you think you want to have it corrected, um, or if you just want to feed back and say you didn't quite get this right, or here's something it would be interesting for you to know, uh, you can do it via social media. Links are in the show notes and I'll plug all the different social media at the end of the show as well. So there's your disclaimers. Now we're going to do the, the terrific news, the translated Chinese fiction news. So I've got three little things. Uh, the first is an event I'd like to promote. It's happening 1pm on the 5th of January. If you're listening in the future, hopefully this one should be available to watch on, on YouTube. Not sure about that though. Um, but anyway, it's called Women, Women Writing China. It's being jointly hosted by the Leeds Centre for New Chinese Writing and by Sinuist Books. Um, and it's got the author Li Juan and the translator of her upcoming book Distant Sunflower Fields, Christopher Payne. And it's going to be focusing on, I guess, I think, interview with uh, Li Juan via an interpreter. I guess Christopher Payne's the interpreter, and she's going to be talking about her book and being a woman writing China, <laughs> whatever that means. Um, yeah, so that is coming up. Put it in your diaries. Second piece of news. This is an article I want to plug. I think it's a pretty cool one. Uh, it's, it's titled How a Music Streaming Site Became a Safe Space for Leftist Listeners. And this is talking about the Chinese website NetEase. It's a music streaming site. NetEase is it's just its English name. When it says leftist listeners, what it means, it's leftist in the Chinese context of like very old school Marxist communist uh, left. So, and a lot of the music, it's not like, I don't know, rebellious rock or uh, rebellious anything well it is rebellious stuff but it's not modern music it's like old socialist anthems and stuff um i think this is this is something that interests me a lot because um as i mentioned um, when i appeared on the dickheads uh, podcast about chinese sci-fi discussions on the chinese internet and in the public sphere in general uh, are very you know they're heavily censored but there are certain spectrums in which you're allowed to have an opinion so to speak and one of them is um like how much of an old school socialist you are or aren't 
Although um, there are certain things that, even if you frame them as like uh, communism, can be or will be taken offline or could get you in trouble. So, you know, thinking of things like workers' uprisings, rebellions, um, that's not so <laughs> the uh, CCP don't take so kindly to that, despite, of course, their own um, heritage or history or background or whatever you want, formation, roots whatever you want to call it, their own connection with, you know, workers' revolts and stuff. So that's an interesting little article. It's quite short, but um, you, who knows, it might be a springboard for you to learn more more about this stuff. Now, the last thing uh, is a BBC Radio 3 series, which is available as a podcast on the BBC Sounds website. It's called Peking Noir. It is uh, presented by none other than Paul French, a former guest on the show. It's, I'm just going to read the first two sen- sentences, the first two paragraphs of its description, because I, I don't think I could do a better job than these things do. So bear with me a minute. Here we go. Whatever anyone declared categorically about Shura Giraldi, someone else insisted on the exact opposite. Shura was handsome and beautiful. Shura was kind and good. Shura was exploitative and evil. Shura was just another struggling white Russian refugee trying to get by in 1930s China. Shura was the heart and brains of a gang that ran clubs, sex workers, illicit booze and drugs, when not robbing banks and stealing gems to fence in Shanghai. Shura loved ballet and cabaret, creating the Shura Giraldi dance troupe that topped the bill at all the best Peking nightclubs. Shura sometimes presented as male and sometimes as female. When passing as a man, Shura bound his breast tightly and wore a sharp tailored suit. When she was a woman, she wore startlingly coloured robes, both Chinese-style cheongsam and western dresses letting her raven hair flow loose, said witnesses. Shura had added an incredibly massive layer of confusion and obfuscation to anyone looking by changing gender, switching for anonymity... You know what I'm trying to say. (laughs) Switching for anonymity? Anonymity? Oh dear. Switching so that you couldn't know who she was, for commercial gain or criminal advantage, for love, for a whim. So it is even cooler than it sounds. I'll say no more than that. But yeah, go check that out. A link to all these things will be in the show notes. Now, enough of me. Well, enough of only me. Let's have me and the guest, the only Viking. Let's hear the interview about Flock of Bahwe. So, hello, Dylan. Good to have you back on the show. How's it going? And what have you been up to? Uh, hey, it's good to be back. I, I can't remember how long ago we 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 did the last one, so mm. I think I've been up to quite a lot. I've translated at least a couple books since then. I've got the Tsai Chong Da memoir that's coming out with HarperCollins and uh, a Mai Jia book as well. Oh, so a, a couple of big things. Probably the last time I talked to you too, I was talking about the the Jiapinghua book and still not mm. out yet. So <laughs> the, still that to look forward to. Can you give us uh, an update on where it is, or is that all confidential? Nah, I don't know if it's confidential, or it's just, uh, I don't know, publishing world is kind of slowed down to some right. extent. Just everything's getting pushed back and back and back. So Understandable. Given the circumstances, yeah, let's keep going. So we're, we're going to talk about Chinese web fiction again. Not that me and you are talking about it again, but it's come up surprisingly often on the show. Um, but most times when we've talked about Chinese web fiction, it's been about something very Chinese. So it's uh, wuxia or some other sort of Chinese fantasy genre. Uh, this time we are looking at a book that's somewhere in the fantasy genre fiction world. 
uh, but its roots aren't really so Chinese. They're more sort of uh, from a Western style. So let's talk about where the book we're talking about emerged from. Um, which hole did it climb out of? Sure. We should say what, what this book is. It's the, mm-hmm. the Flock of Bahue. It's It's got a really interesting story in that it's Lovecraftian. It comes from the Cthulhu mythos mm. um, and came from a message board dedicated to role-playing games, which is not usually a source of literature, especially, you know, anything that we see. You know, it's something you usually have to be in the scene to to know about. Not something that usually appears through like a press and in translation. Yeah. And in a press that doesn't do, you know, role-playing games. It's a just a normal what are they? It's come for press. So they do sort of books from China, Taiwan, Asia. Um, mostly yeah. untranslated, I think. Mostly it's stuff by Westerners over there who have been over there writing about it. Um, but this one's from a very different source. It's from like you said, the Ring of Wonder. If anyone want, if anyone listening wants to go visit, that's a trow.cc. And I, in my research for the show, I had a look, thinking it was going to be a forum of uh, like web fiction, something like um, Chidian, the Tencent web fiction site. But it's it's actually like you said, no, it's a message board for mostly not writing, mostly discussion of yeah, I don't know and it's it, like a culture. It's really like an old school message board, like the kind that you don't see anymore. Like it, it's, I think it was launched in 2005-ish, but it mm. looks like it could be from like 1998. It's got that, like that pure message board aesthetic. Yeah, totally. So that's, that's the book and where it came from. The author goes under the username Ubmab, which makes more sense when you spell it backwards. And we'll, we'll talk more about the translators later. You mentioned it was. You mentioned it's a Lovecraftian book, and it's from the uh, Lovecraft mythos. That's probably the main thing we should stress: is that it's not just in a sort of a um, horror vein of horror, the horror genre that you could describe as Lovecraftian. It's deliberately a homage in the mythos. Maybe some of the listeners know what that means; others don't. So, what do we mean when we say the Cthulhu or the Lovecraft mythos? Yeah, I think that's the best place to start um, explaining who Lovecraft is and explaining why anyone would set their works in like his extended universe or why he has an extended universe. Lovecraft was a sort of horror, fantasy, science fiction writer of the early 20th century. He was basically unknown in his lifetime. He would... Uh, published in like small, like amazing stories magazines or little horror magazines. And he basically died penniless and, and unknown and by all accounts, very unhappy. Um, and he was sort of resurrected at a later date. I mean, there was, a, uh, what's the name of the guy? Durleth? Durleth? August um, Durleth, yeah. Yeah, he came along and he had he had known Lovecraft during his lifetime and, and respected his work and basically started collecting it together and cataloging it and collecting all these other people who were writing kind of similar stories and putting them together and forming what was called the Cthulhu mythos, which is uh, like his extended universe, I guess, um, made sort of united by like 
like his idea of like cosmic horror and also like the the certain deities that he added into that world what do you think is that is that close to explaining yeah. it yeah i mean i'm i'm hardly an expert but yeah that sounds about right um yeah continuing um continuing the themes and bringing not none of i don't think any of the human characters are continued because they're not really the point there are characters it's all these entities from the bottom of the earth or from outer space and i think this this will come up later talking about flock of Bathway, but one of the ideas in cosmic horror is that um you know we're very small the universe is huge time is very long our lives are minutely short and the universe earth or the universe was around long before humans it will be around long after we're gone, either as individuals or as a species. And the little fantastical conceit is that there's these much more uh, intelligent or incomprehensible beings that were also there before us and are going to come back one day and take our place and do horrible things to us. That's like what's special about Lovecraft and what's the the source of the horror and what makes it so horrible yeah. is that it wasn't like, um, you know, imagine a typical horror story, you know, there's... Um, there's a madman coming to stab you um, or there's, uh, you know, some sort of a, a, a monster reanimated back to life. I mean, those things might be in Lovecraft, but he basically is tries to instill in the reader that sense that not that the world is against us or that the world is evil, but that we're completely insignificant. The world doesn't care about us. If, uh, if anything bad happens to us, if any, if any, there's no, there's no good or evil. There's, we're just little ants, less than ants, just specks waiting to be crushed by things greater than us. Humanity doesn't, doesn't matter. Civilization doesn't matter. So the ant thing, ant thing probably gives him something in common with the obsession, even though they're writing quite different stuff. And if, if you're a cynical person or a, what is the word for someone who hates, someone who hates humanity? What is that word? Um, a nihilist um no there's a, a word misanthrope yeah if you're a misanthrope you probably would like this stuff um because it would <laughs> it would give you some um literary foundation for your but in, in a way it's almost more hopeful than than like just being a misanthrope or being a nihilist it's just like in a way it's like it's almost freeing if you take on that that as your belief that you know it's it's not saying you shouldn't try to build civilization and shouldn't try to to do whatever it is you want to do but it just doesn't matter at the end of the day Mm, yeah and i forget if this is explicitly said by lovecraft anywhere in his letters or if this is just secondary things i read um there's an author this was sort of my gateway to learning about lovecraft uh an author called thomas Ligotti, who is actually a nihilist and by all accounts seems to be a pretty miserable guy but his sort of one glimmer of light that he gets something out of life is writing writing about horrible, terrifying things, but have some sort of glimmer of the sublime. And his he has a non-fiction book, which is sort of a nihilist manifesto um, called The Conspiracy Against the Human Race. And everywhere in that, where he cites Lovecraft, it's sort of about, ironically, like the love of the craft. It's about this kind of supreme, awful feeling, which, although... I'm only really using negative or neutral words to describe it. Seems to be some source of something, something, something that these guys could latch onto. Like, like I guess, like most people who call themselves a nihilist, it's actually impossible to really be a nihilist. There's always something you sort of get something out of. 
Um, but yeah. we're, yeah. We're I was thinking, of, sorry, go on. I, I, I got into Lovecraft through William S. Burroughs and, and hearing his name like connected to those hmm. uh, 1980s trilogies he wrote, like um, The Western Lands, Place of Dead Roads, and all those horrible novels about centipedes killing people and um, a lot of homoerotic, horrible, uh, sadistic sex. And, and um, I mean, compared to that kind of stuff, I mean, Lovecraft is... Kind of like a walk in the park, yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, the only borrows I've read was um, Naked Bunch, and I was not ready for that. <laughs> I didn't know what I was getting myself in for. Um, but let's let's bring things a little bit back to Flock of Batway. Um, mm. lay a little bit more groundwork. Um, I know you know a little bit about Lovecraft's impact in China and it, its neighbors in East Asia, um, because you did a little bit of a, a blog about that and some other things. And this is something I'm nothing about, pretty much. So what can you say about that? Well, I think we we have to take a step back to to that to that point where um, Derla starts collecting his stories and what happens after that. So mm. it it wasn't really like it wasn't like it was it wasn't like Lovecraft exploded into into um, literary stardom. Um, he was sort of picked up by like the '60s counterculture guys like Burroughs and um, sci-fi guys, but. The key thing is, perhaps for his fame, was uh, a role-playing game, The Call of right. Cthulhu, in the early '80s, and that was that probably introduced more people to Lovecraft than anything else, and that's also how it got into Asia. You know, um, Japanese role-playing folks were got into it, and from there, you you get a whole bunch of Lovecraftian fiction and things set in the Cthulhu mythos. And I think Japan is the key to understanding how it, how it jumps into China. I don't think it's, there was, there was no tradition of it, of um, there were no translations of Lovecraft. There's like one from 1948, which might even have been a translation from Japanese. And really it doesn't pick up again in China until that role-playing game and manga that came from the role-playing game cultural sphere made the jump over to the Chinese internet. Does that mm. make any sense? Yeah. Um, what was the, which story was it that made it over in 1948? Uh, I, can't, I can't remember. It oh. was... Uh, I think, you, did you name it in your blog? Yeah, I named, it was the, the music of Eric Zan or something like that. Right. Um, which I've not... That read. was night. Yeah, me neither. I didn't know it at all either. Um, there was there was a, a Japanese Edogawa Rampo. He's like a famous, he's like the Conan Doyle of Japan. He was sort of like a a Lovecraft head in the in like the post-war 40s. And he sort of introduced that sort of he, that's how he sort of introduced it. There were a lot of translations. There were like a ton of pulp magazines and cheap paperbacks in Japan in the post-war period and he Lovecraft was very popular there. So like as early as even before the board game, if I can take a step back again, even before the board game arrived in the eighties, there was like a small community of like Lovecraft people and actually people writing in the Lovecraft in the Cthulhu mythos in like the sixties and seventies, even before the board game. But the board game is really key to understanding everything here i think and how it gets into like nerd culture in general for sure yeah um 
if you if one just does some quite basic googling about people Lovecraft today on the English language internet, I'm sure in more than one or two places you can see uh, there would be some kind of mention that loads and loads of people in the English or Western English speaking world or Western world who know Lovecraft have might know vaguely that it stems from a guy who wrote stuff, or they they might not know at all. But what what they will know it from is either the board game or the board game's offspring, be it like uh, movies or comic books, or even like little woolly-knitted Cthulhu octopuses. Yeah, like I knew there was something called Cthulhu, and he was mm. like an octopus man, uh, right. way before I, I ever heard about Lovecraft. Yeah, same, yeah. same. Right, so that's probably all we can say. I did just remember, um, I learned by listening to the Spectology podcast, who are one of the other podcasts who've interviewed um, uh, Chinese sci-fi author Shen Fan. Uh, he mentioned to them that he really likes uh, Lovecraft. I don't know if he enjoys other weird fiction or stuff, but should he ever come back on, I'll, I really want to ask him about that because it's 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 all very very well for us to be scratching our heads, wondering where this thing jumped from across the sea from Japan to China, but someone like uh, Stan Chenjofan might be able to give us more of an inside picture, uh, so to speak. But let's keep moving on. Um, we mentioned a little bit about how the stories themselves are from this website, Ring of Wonder, but we haven't talked about how the translators found it and how we eventually have an English language book we can buy and read today. Um, I just reread the translators' intros. There's two translators. Um, the story kind of is like a stepping stone from the original text to one translator to the next, then to the publisher. I could lay it out or you could do that. Uh, you lay it out because you just reread the um, hmm. you just reread the introductions. I've, yeah, I've, I reread them a couple of days ago, but they're probably fresh in your mind now. Right now, sure, right, yeah. If I miss anything, um, just just jump in. Sure. So we have we start with the story on uh, the Ring of Wonder, and this guy who identifies himself only by his um, internet username uh, Akira finds the story. Both these translators are expats who lived in China. I, one of them, I don't know if he's still there, but this guy Akira, he mentions that he's left, presumably gone back to wherever he came from. Um, so Akira, this guy, had become in, interested in Lovecraft in 2013 and was also, I think, learning Chinese at the same time. So decided to have a shot at translating um, this one Lovecraftian story off of Ring of Wonder called uh, The Flock of Bahui, because we, we should mention there's four stories or arguably five, we'll get into that. Four or five stories in the book. And Walk of Way, the titular one, is the first story proper in the book. So anyway, he had a go at translating it, found it was much harder than he expected, got so far, and then as a way of motivating himself, decided to, I don't know, publicize what he was doing online. I don't he didn't I don't think he said if he was tweeting about it or who knows what. But um Yeah, he was he was tweeting and, and right. posting about it before because I do remember mention of it um before the book came out all right okay so he tweeted about it then and that got the attention of another uh, what, what can we say online slash literary persona this guy arthur and my french pronunciation is terrible mersu mersault mersault i like uh, mersault uh, arthur mersault uh found mm. him yeah <laughs> um found him and this this guy is was a previously published author he'd written a book called party members kind of a dark um, i was going to say edgy maybe edgy or edgelord pick your word 
uh, sort of black comedy about I don't know party members in some Chinese city. Yeah, it was like a like a like a super intense satire yeah. of um, of China. Right, I can only imagine. But that was published by this same publisher, Camphor Press, and I guess Arthur Mersault also uh, is able to translate Chinese. So he kind of took up the baton, finished off Flock of Bahui, translated three other stories by this author, the Ubmap, that were on uh, Ring of Wonder, and then he gave it back to Akira for a final pass. So maybe tidying up the English rather than translating. I'm not sure. I would assume that's what he was doing. And I guess the book then got accepted uh, by Comfort Press, previously published party members. And now we have it. Although the translators played a little bit of a game, a literary game with how they presented the stories. I guess we could talk about that unless there's anything I missed. I don't think I missed anything. But No, I mean, I would say Arthur Marceau, his book Party Members is, when you, when you read it, you think... Um, if you've read it, you think he would be the perfect person to to translate this kind of stuff because it's just full of um, purple prose and just like everything amped up. I mean, it's 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 like um, it's like something out of a a pulp magazine. It's he, he'd be absolutely perfect for this, and I I think that turns out to be true. But yeah, they they took the the stories in here and added an additional like framing story where four people. Uh, a researcher, a dreamer, an anthropologist, and a historian have been invited to a remote Himalayan farmhouse to to have these stories uh, recounted to them. If I'm if I'm not mistaken, if I'm not misremembering, yeah, that's what we're led to believe at the opening. But there's some twists in the. There's a quite good twist actually in in this framing device story. Have Have you read or heard of a Lovecraft story called uh, The Whisperer in Darkness? I don't think so. Right. Think so. This, well, I won't spoil exactly how, but the framing story ends up referencing that one. So ah. just like some of the Chinese stories, there's a, there, I don't know, there's there's all these different words, pastiche, parody, homage, pick your, pick whichever one, but it's, it's an inter, it's intertextualizing of some other older yeah. actual story. I, I feel like I should have said like right at the start that I'm not, I'm not a lover of Lovecraft. Um, I'm not the, biggest Lovecraft fan I it's really not my type of thing but I have read read quite a bit and um I think this this book would be maybe 10 times better if you could pick up all the all the buried Lovecraft references both in the framing story and in the um in the stories they've translated the Ubmab stories for sure I feel like I'm missing out a little bit on that yeah although that's if you think about it that's quite different from a lot of other uh, translated Chinese fiction where the translator either has to leave a footnote, the reference will be to something, whether or not it's translated, your average Western reader maybe won't have heard of. And often it's referencing stuff which you can't even read in English in the first place. So the translator has got to decide whether to natural, well, foreignize the thing, uh, footnote it, or just kind of leave it and the reference is lost. There's some good examples of, of that in here, like of, 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 of both like Chinese books that most people have never read with a footnote and right. also things that, you know, are Lovecraft references. Mm. Which are, you know, in, unless you really randomly picked up the book, it's a common thing between you and the author. Something yeah. that, you know, despite all your cultural differences and whatever, you both would know at least a little bit about. Yeah, myself, I've not read a massive amount of uh, Lovecraft stories, just some of, mostly some of the more famous ones. But um, that Whisperer in Darkness story, that's, I really, it was a nice surprise to find out that 
the framing was based on that story because that's probably my favorite Lovecraft story out of all the ones mm-hmm. I've read. It's really, it's really quite good. It's got, um, it's, it takes the two things I like the most, which are the atmosphere, creating a freaky otherworldly atmosphere and a sense of dread and tying in some kind of bigger cosmic or, and there's monsters. It helps when there's monsters, <laughs> concretize things a bit. So yeah, that's us kind of summarized the framing device. Maybe we could summarize the stories too. I think we agreed you were good doing all but describing all but one of them. And I'll try and describe the uh, sort of odd one out of the four. Sure. Um, let's start with the 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 main one. The well, the the titular story is is the flock of Bahwe, which is like a pretty much. If you've read Lovecraft, you've you've probably read some variation on this story. You've got uh, an archaeologist who has gone missing. He's he's gone hunting for some references to some um, extinct kingdom, perhaps some serpent god called Bahwe. And he comes back to his house with some pottery shards that he's found on his expeditions. And they give off a fishy smell. Another another great Lovecraft thing. Mm-hmm. Every, everybody's always giving off fishy smells. Yeah, a huge racist um, and he hated seafood. And it's hard to know which one he hated more. And the uh, the translation is is a, a, a great a great it's called a, a noisome ichthyoid um, scent, well, just just wonderful. And so, anyways, this archaeologist is is driven mad. He ends up burning down his house. He torches all of his uh, his notes. He's confined by his I believe it's his wife to a mental institution. And then our our narrator is is forced to um, to go assembling the the pieces of the puzzle. He retraces the steps of this um, mad archaeologist. He locates the place that the pottery shards came from. He descends into a strange cave where there's murals on the wall depicting all manner of revolting acts from human sacrifice to cannibalism he sees skeletons of a unknown species perhaps some sort of reptile he gets deeper and deeper into the into the cave and finally the serpent god or whoever the hell it is appears he manages to escape or he finds himself uh, outside of the cave and they go back to the archaeologist notebook and find his final words that he has become a child of Bahwe as perhaps they themselves have too. Mm. Perfect Lovecraft story, beautiful, beautifully done here, beautifully translated as well. Yeah, um, we can talk a bit more about the prose later, but yeah, I, I agree. For the most part, the um, this strapping together of various slightly obscure uh, adjectives and adverbs is pretty well done. Uh, yeah, so that's that one. Is uh, the next one my ancient one? tower, or is do you want to do it, Nadir? Nadir was Nadir. The, yeah, Nadir was the second story, wasn't it? So I'm yeah. doing this one, or I'm going to describe it as, as well as I can remember it. Is a bit of an odd one out because it doesn't have a Chinese setting or a setting within the People's Republic of China. It doesn't even really have a real world setting. It's in some sort of a abstract, not in a fancy one that you couldn't you couldn't pin it on like which particular region of the world it's based on although my feeling was it had a generally sort of western 
or European or whatever feel. I think um, in the intro, the translators mention that the story references so and so different um, settings from the Cthulhu mythos or the Lovecraft mythos, but I didn't know I didn't know what they were. Um, so unless you're really up on your Lovecraft, it might just read like a generic fantasy setting, which reminded me um, when the translator Deathblade was running me through the different uh, online Chinese fantasy genres. There's one which I've never looked at uh, called Xuan Huan, uh, which is kind of a West, it's got a more kind of, it doesn't have any strictly Chinese elements. It tends to be fantasy worlds or Western influenced fantasy worlds. So I wondered if there were some Xuan Huan influences in Nadir, maybe not. I th I think like the, like the Lovecrafting is usually divided into like the Cthulhu mythos and then Arkham or Lovecraft country, which is like the, the New England setting. Right. And then like the, Dunsany stories, the ones who are influenced by this Lord Dunsany, which are like all these fantasy settings. There's like a yeah. whole body of these like Lovecraft stories that are that are set in like you can't really tell if it's like Europe of like the Dark Ages or later. It's sort of sort of hard to hard to pin down. Yeah, I think actually now you mentioned it, the translator's interest said something about the dream cycle. But yeah, sorry, they've got a more sort of a uh, um, romantic, I guess, romantic in the literary sense, like big feelings, huge landscapes, yeah. kind of dreamy, blah, blah. So this guy, he's on a search for truth and beauty or something. He finds a big dark tower. He begins to climb it. It seems to go on and on forever. I think at some points he's climbing through pitch darkness. Things reach huge extremes. I think he almost starves on the way up because he's been climbing so long. He finally gets to the top and he sees sort of a celestial heavens, which appears to be very beautiful, but then awful things start to happen the stars start moving in ways they shouldn't and it becomes very sort of i guess like pure cosmic horror because there's no monsters he's just seeing the stars in the universe revealing themselves to be evil or malicious or at least if like we were saying even if they're not actively malicious they just they're incomprehensible and they don't give a shit about you and they're probably not very good for your you know their being in their proximity won't be good for your brain or your, or your body so I think he's driven mad or whatever. He's cast out of the tower and he finds himself in a world that's his own, but not quite his own. Um, so I think, Dylan, you said you didn't really like that one. I liked it quite a bit. Um, and it felt like, a, although it was second out of four, it sticks better in my mind in some ways because it stands out. Whereas I think story one and four are a little bit samey. Story three is quite interesting, though. It's quite different in a way. It's a I, think it's like, I think it's just like a personal taste, you know. Yeah. I like realism, and any right. any any when we completely depart from realism, it, it gets a bit tough for me. I mean, it's sure. kind of tough as somebody who loves realism to to be uh, to be into Lovecraft, and that's part of why I'm not a huge Lovecraft fan. But that is, is get, getting a little bit too far off off track for me. I need I need a couple a couple of real life locations to to anchor me to the world. Yeah, and it's like if it was a longer novel or novella-length story, he'd have to do some world building. Um, if it was a flash fiction, really short, then probably no problem. But it's at that sort of several thousand words length where if you're looking for something to hold on to, you just won't really get it. You just have to kind of roll with the, the magic. See, that that's why my favorite was, was um, if not The Flock of Bafwe, then uh, Black Taisway. Mm. I mean, I'll just, I'll just skip quickly over The Ancient Tower, which is kind of a, a similar thing i mean it's 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 um 
somebody goes into a, a stupa out on the they hear a strange sound emitted from a <clears throat> from a stupa out on the plateau and uh, descend inside or ascend inside and see horrible things um yeah. black tie is a little bit more um meaty and tends to appeal to my taste a bit more uh again we have an archaeologist uh he's appears at the start of the story as a decomposed corpse his papers and his belongings get donated to the provincial archaeology institute and what those papers narrate is a is a family history a very strange family history about his great grandfather who was living along the Qingdao River. And uh, he was suspected by the German authorities of smuggling something because he was always going out on his boat at strange times in the middle of the night. But he was involved in occult activities. He formed a, a cult called the School of Longevity. He kept expanding his, his, uh, his holdings along the river until he had built a sort of compound for himself. And he began tunneling into the ground People in the nearby area heard mysterious sounds, perhaps the call of Cthulhu coming from uh, coming from from there. So, anyways, the the archaeo the archaeologist who appears first as a decomposed corpse at the start of the story, he ends up tracking down his great grandfather. He buys that property. He finds a strange trap door, lookout. He goes down inside he starts writing these notes about what he sees there. He, he finds a manuscript um, describing these strange monsters and immortality, uh, things that his ancestors, his great grandfather uh, would have described, would have seen, would have been in, in contact with. And our narrator who's working at the Archaeology Institute goes to that compound and descends into the trap door and finds exactly what Lao Mingchang found that left him a, a decomposed corpse. Another typically Lovecraftian protagonist and, and setting and everything. Yeah, and it gets, it gets weirder and weirder as it goes on as well, which is a nice, uh, a nice touch. Whereas like, I, I, suppose, I suppose the other three stories do get weirder and weirder, but that's in a more direct way because the protagonist is going either deeper down a tunnel or higher up a tower so it's not so much in the plotting in the atmosphere that things get weirder but it's more literal whereas yeah like i think you're right in saying it's uh, black tie sway is a bit more meaty or fleshy because the, there is a sort of there's a, i guess that's one of the sources of horror in lovecraft or lovecraftian stories is fleshiness of some of the monsters that are described they might some some of them are so otherworldly that you wouldn't necessarily even think of them as having flesh but other ones are described as being like leathery or fishy or slimy or slippy and that's there's a, a passage you sent me on twitter uh, from black Tysway that you really liked and uh, maybe we could read that actually so the sure. listeners know i've got it i've got it up right now i was i was dying to read it <laughs> Perfect. Let, let me the officer saw inordinate multitudes of grotesque glistening arms claws, tentacles, and other unknown limbs stretching from and plunging into that hellish pile. Innumerable grimacing wounds cracking open and sealing shut like mouths, and legions of viridian eyes forming like pustules, melting and popping across the ceaseless undulating of the creature's surface. 
far more than a blasphemous imitation of nature in the lapses between spewing protoplasmic organs all of the arms claws and tentacles twisted and twirled through the fetid air desperately grasping anything nearby the mouth-like fissures screamed broken gibberish in an indistinguishable cacophony while the temporary eyes rolled in the direction of the light source glaring unblinking seeing amid the pandemonium the infernal mass began to roll toward them like hot tar swelling and trembling eddying pulsating how about that it's it's something it's um, yeah. it's all in playing all the cards um there's a few other things that i'll mention now in the summary so we can bring them up later or, or uh, yeah i think i think they're worth mentioning so um the flock of pathway where we go into the tunnel and meet the snake god sort of guy that is set in an area of i think southern sichuan at least a mountainous area of sichuan where the population are an ethnic one of china's minorities one of their minsu it's the the yi who are a real they're real people and the one of the things that um our narrator finds is evidence of a sort of lost kingdom where these it, there's like a, a a very sort of like world mythology sort of find, founding myth that they were able to work out in slightly uh in slightly um what's the word they were able to work out just from cave paintings a very detailed origin story of the people which sort of stretches um your belief but whatever it's it's web fiction so there's an origin story of these i think seven brothers who are fleeing trying to find a new kingdom they make a sort of a faustian deal with the mountain god who transforms them into hideous shapes and then we we learn or the archaeologists or whatever pieces together that there was this ancient kingdom that sort of buoyed the neighboring kingdoms in this region of what today's is modern china so there's that the only thing i'd say about black tie sway that might be worth mentioning later is that the cult found this black substance called black tie sway way out in the sea to the east and they link it back to journeys that are documented way back in chinese history where people were trying to go east and find the land of the immortals so the author ugmab's tied lovecrafty and stuff into more ancient chinese stuff in an interesting way i think that bears mentioning and in the ancient tower we're in tibet so the people the narrator is going into a, an area which is home to tibetans and he goes into a stupa a buddhist stupa so a tibetan buddhist stupa and then he finds uh, when he finds something awful way down below he sees there are tibetan people sort of involved either willingly or unwillingly it's not totally clear but they seem to be wrapped up in the horrible goings on and when i think this this is worth bearing in mind when we get on to talk about uh lovecraft the racist and the racism that's in the old lovecraft stories and whether or not we see them in these ones or whether we see something something that could be compared how well do you think the stories emulate lovecraft i mean we we did we read that passage and certainly they've got adjective they translate well ubmab and the translators have produced something with amazing fantastical descriptions otherwise how well do you think the stories work as homages to lovecraft or being part of the the mythos I think they're absolutely excellent. Um yeah. it's clear that the that Ubmab, I mean, he's he's also he's also translated um Lovecraft and some other stories from the Cthulhu mythos. He right. clearly knows them very well and he he pulls it off basically perfectly. I mean, and the translators uh 
match the language i think as as close as as you can as close as you can get i think it's it's quite perfect mm. my feeling was yeah the, in terms of the style it was really there i didn't always get the sense of cosmic heart horror some of the really good lovecraft stories gave me but then again not every lovecraft story i read gave me a sense of dread or horror either but um like i'm thinking of uh the one i mentioned whisper in darkness which has a slow burn has monsters has cosmic horror whereas like i felt some of the stories ticked one or two boxes mm, not sure if any of them ticked all of them but i'm just nitpicking i think in general yeah they're a really interesting homage but they're also recognizably chinese which is pretty cool um which kind of so you're gonna say something or uh no uh i think maybe i'm i'm i don't know i wonder if i wonder if there's some sort of cultural um affinities that we might have or cultural uh feelings we might have that would like reading of the shadow over innsmouth um mm. there's something that is more something that can be connected to more immediately right. than than like um descending into a stupa you know what i mean Mm, sure like, yeah there was it's like um my girlfriend is 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 horribly afraid of of shrines at night um yeah, there's so many shrines shrine. right yeah shrines shinto shrines dotted mm. around uh tokyo they walking through a shrine yard at night is it w- wouldn't cause me any um any concern but it, it would cause her to to look twice because there's so many stories about about bad things happening in shrine yards or like right. cemeteries for for me i wouldn't cut through a cemetery mm. at midnight i wonder if that's sort of kind of a factor here yes settings settings are interesting um because i mean one thing i do know about original lovecraft stories is yeah you have some set in his sort of a uh, new england sort of world but he has other stories which are set in very far flung places so one of the other ones which is one of his better liked ones probably one of the my favorite ones i've read the mountains of madness which is set somewhere in a crazy formation of mountains in uh, antarctica and i'm thinking of other what there's one i don't remember what it was called but um it's a lot like a uh, block of bathway and the ancient tower it's about a guy descending beneath a pyramid or a desert a lost city in the maybe it's a lost city in the desert but he's clearly not he's in somewhere very far away that hp lovecraft himself never would have been to um maybe the nameless city the nameless city could it be yeah so that this is one thing lovecraft did he would use settings kind of like exotic and quote marked settings of fantastic places which he himself never visited and possibly never would have wanted to because he just knew about them from books he despite being i think he's described as being both kind of from another time born in the wrong generation sort of guy but also he's described as being kind of i don't know how you, who knows what this means but being more sort of european than he was american or pining for the old world in some way but he never went so yeah my my point was yeah setting is an interesting thing because maybe there's something we'd get from us yeah like shadow of rensmouth where it's a very particular sort of old western town versus one in a setting he's basically made up like mountains under antarctica and yeah in this book we have one fantasy setting where we're probably on equal footing more or less with the chinese reader and then we have south 
Sichuan, where we, us too, wouldn't be on an equal footing with some random Lovecraft fan who didn't really know, you know, couldn't find right. Sichuan on a map, didn't, or, or would maybe assume that the Yi ethnicity people are just the author's creation. And maybe a generic Western reader reading a story set in Tibet would come in with slightly more loaded expectations than we do. And it's interesting. I wonder, mm-hmm. like, how, how, you know, like that Orientalist horror of of like the nameless city where he's he's out in the desert and he finds a strange um temple you know that's that sort of you know strikes horror into uh white anglos like the idea of like this eastern uh horrible place i wonder if they, if if that's sort of an influence with choosing these places like a a tibetan stupa or um like definitely not chinese places you know, distinctly not Chinese places, except for that's Black it. Taisui. It's it's Tibet and, mm-hmm. it's, and it's those sort of things. I wonder how much that's influenced by like the Orientalist horror that you find in like in Western horror and Lovecraft in particular. Um, I'm going to skip to our question or kind of in a roundabout way, skip ahead slightly to where I was going to planning to talk about, yeah, like ethnicity and, and, and race and all this stuff. And um, because what we've not said although it's there by implication, is that all our narrators seem to be Han Chinese. And in two of the four stories, they're going to non-Han places, or it wouldn't be too much of a story to say they're going to places which are not Chinese, but which are inside modern China. And certainly for most of history and time uh, have not been Han. And this is an interesting thing. I think when you look at more recent um, discussion about Lovecraft, there's this idea of deep time that people try and bring into him, which I think is a term that's has become more popular around, I don't know, the last 10 years or something. But the idea of there's there's time that we can measure in our history, like um, medieval periods, classical periods, even uh, prehistoric man. But then when you go really far back, there's deep time, um, which we can't, thinking in numbers won't really help us. Like all you have to do is watch um, BBC Walking with Dinosaurs or something and try and take seriously the numbers that you're showing, numbers of hundreds of millions of years that these things existed. And your brain starts to go in a sort of a down a Lovecraftian path where you think about how infinitesimal you are. Yeah, when you think about um, the Han, Han Chinese people, I believe they started off in a pretty small corner of what today is modern China. And the landscapes, which are today part of modern China, are really diverse. I went into this, this, um, this train of thought without a clear end point in mind. But suffice to say, if you were trying to mine the non-Han areas for some horror, going down into the earth, into time, so to speak, finding stuff from the deep, deep past, long before records were made, doesn't seem like a bad strategy. And I think Ubmab's done it in a way that's not nasty towards the Yi or the Tibetan people, whereas some of Lovecraft's stories, not, not all of them, but he does... I think in Cthulhu, for example, he writes some pretty just nasty things about black people, the black people of the world or whatever. Whereas like if you were looking for something mean about the Yi or the Tibetans, you'd kind of have to be analyzing it or reading between the lines or seeing stuff that's not really there. Well, I mean, poor Lovecraft had to meet uh, Italians and Irish and black people, but uh, probably Umab has never had to had to come into contact with, with uh, <laughs> Tibetans or Yi. Probably Perhaps. Yeah. I mean, um, but yeah, like if you were a big part of Lovecraft is that is is that horror at racial difference and racial mixing. So if you were, I guess, if you were Chinese, the first thing you would go to would not be 
immigrants. There's no Irish immigrants coming over, um, munching on potatoes. It would be Tibetans and and those sort of, um, you know, quote unquote primitive cultures on the on the right. margins of the of the of the Han Empire. That's where you would go to get that Orientalist horror. I don't know if there's much more I can say. Just there was a, a thing that I really found interesting in the story was like the bit I mentioned in Okabawe uh, where we're learning that there was this not just a, a, a cult or a people, but the Bahwe seemed to have like a kingdom that was ransacking the nearby kingdoms. So you have this, it's not said outright in the text, but if you put it together, it's saying that there were plenty of different kingdoms or states in a land which now, if you say it's not Chinese in front of a nationalistic Chinese person, no. they maybe they won't give you a punch in the face, but they will not be happy with you. But you, it would be, what am I trying to say? You'd have to be very deluded to think that this land had always been part of the mm. glorious Chinese nation or empire or what have you. And this, I think this, I think the story kind of tugs that string a little without yanking it. I was going to say it's interesting that a lot of the the Japanese Cthulhu mythos stories and Lovecraftian horror goes to China as a as a source of mm. as like of of Oriental strangeness. There's this this writer called Asamatsu Ken. And he, um, he, he wrote about this Shang Dynasty mummy that shows up at a, at a museum or some sort of archaeology institute, which turns out to have reptilian DNA. You know, it's the, in, in that case, China is always the source of it. So it kind of makes sense that, uh, mm. that the Chinese would look for just on the margins of their empire. There was a book I read recently. It was not a really hardcore history book, but it was a, his, a history book about the Mongol Empire from Genghis Khan through to, I guess, um, the very last, the very last um, vestiges of what had been the Mongol Empire. Um, so the early stuff is quite interesting because it's talking about not just the Mongols, but all their neighbors and their early conquests. Whilst there's still enough to fit in one chapter where they had neighbors spanning most of the world. And it talks a little bit about, I think it's the kingdom of Western Xia, who were we don't really know how Chinese or not they were because um, there's very few relics of what they were, but they were sort of, um, they were west of the Han Empire. They were rival to the Han Empire. And it was not the Han Chinese that destroyed them, I believe. It was it was the Mongols. Um, and like, it's sort of a, as far as I'm aware, it's like a big historical question mark. Like, is that a really distinct culture, which is just gone? And who knows, is maybe buried under the earth now. Um, it's an interesting thought. Um, I think it, I'm forgetting. Yeah, you mentioned the Shang. I was thinking of them because just this is based on like one or two books I've read and a lot of faffing about in Wikipedia. The Shang dynasty is a very interesting one too uh, to me because if I understand correctly, they were they had a rival who surpassed them. Was it the Qin or no? Know. No, <laughs> I'm embarrassing myself. Who was it that who was it that replaced them? No, you're you're not embarrassing yourself because I have no idea. All oh, right, this, okay. this history is just completely. Uh, I know I know very little about the about the Shang Dynasty. Mm. Well, I know. So you're I, impressing me by, right. by by saying that there was a rival. Yeah. Please, please listeners, um, getting touch and berate me for misrepresenting history, but I believe they're they're from so far back in the past that only a few things exist. I think the Shang Bone or Oracle Bone scripts are, are one, but. Um, I think it's an interesting thing where it's like how much of how much are they a sort of an ancestor of modern China and how much are they just a culture that's gone buried under the earth 
have you ever heard of the mud floods? No. Okay, there's there's this theory proposed by by various people that um, basically in Europe that there was that the Renaissance was immediately preceded by by like the the golden age of Greek and and Roman culture that there was no dark ages. Like um, Galkovsky talks about this too. Uh, he's a, a, a Russian writer mm. um, where that there the, there was nothing. Everything was everything was fake. There was just a fake history constructed between this, this is, this is high level stuff. This is mm. high level stuff. All right. I'm, I'm, I'm red pilling you here oh, no. on, uh, on the mud floods and, and Galkovsky. Okay. That there was Can like I stop a, you? When you said some people, who are some people? Well, let's say Galkovsky, let's say Galkovsky, but it's mostly an internet, like flat okay. earth right. caliber okay. theory that, that basically everything was, was was covered over in mud and that basically the dark ages didn't exist i mean it, this is cut this out of the whole, <laughs> the whole thing but it, it came to mind there no no i think a lot of these conspiracy theories there's some kind of interesting nugget of not maybe not truth but there's an interesting thread there because i as far as i understand it modern some of the modern historians do say that the what's thought to be the dark a horrible dark time in European history did have some things that nice things that were gestating or there was reasonable amount of written culture and that calling it the dark ages is too dismissive but yeah right. then when leaping to the idea that everything got buried under mud and recon yes it, yeah. you know if, if you've not got critical thinking skills you might go down that path yes if you can bring up your shang theories i can bring up my, my right mud and galkovsky so <laughs> let's, yeah. let's 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 keep going here no yeah i, I think that, yeah, the, the cool stuff I put on that is even if you accept that your crazy shower thoughts and theories are nonsense as fiction, they can be really interesting thought. Sure. Like I'm, I'm sure this is something a lot of Lovecraftian fans would agree with that your little strange fantasies about the hidden hidden realities and stuff. Okay, they might have no use value, but if you know if, if they entertain you, if they hold some sort of sublime power over you, then why not indulge yourself a bit? for sure yeah Yeah. absolutely yes hell yeah i don't think there's much more we can say about the sort of dubious or not orientalizing in the stories without repeating ourselves but we could take this a little bit further if we look at the literary slash online persona of the translators because i think it's not quite an accident well they've they said they were lovecraft fans but there might be more to tease out here and i think they're persona is really worth mentioning because you know they have two they've each given themselves an intro to the book and they've added their own creative writing some translators might say that is not what a translator does don't do that but i would say like it's quite good creative writing and it blends something to the stories so i'm not saying it's bad that they've inserted themselves but it might be worth talking about who they are how why they've connected with the text do you have anything yeah, you can say I, about that I think you have to with with something mm. like this that's sort of plucked from a a role playing game message board. It's it's very different story than than translating somebody who who's has an agent and and wants to be. It's clearly mm. more showing more intention on the part of the of the of the translators in in curating this kind of of thing. And and yeah. an interesting question is um, why they're curating this in particular. Uh, why are these two gentlemen so interested in in this? Um, and I don't think there's there's any 
Mm-hmm. I don't think they try to cover up exactly why they're interested in it, or at least we can get a good idea. You know, Akira in the in his introduction mentions his interest in neo reaction, and Arthur Merceau. I mean, we can gather from his his writings what sort of stuff he's interested in too. Yeah, you know, and and we sort of that's sort of an interesting question is is what since there's we can they're sort of somewhat explicit about their their own politics or yeah their leaning philosophy what's going on why why have they chosen this and you know there's um with like neo reactionary philosophy or politics or whatever lovecraft sort of looms large you know um curtis yarvin he came up with the you know he always uses cthulhu always swims left i mean maybe we should pause and rewind what's neo reaction who's curtis yarvin <laughs> let's not bamboozle the listeners yeah yeah let's not um but what is neo reaction i mean it's sort of um what is neo reaction um sort of let's let's talk about like nick land and and curtis yarvin nick land you've I know you're familiar with him, but sort of a accelerationist, somebody who's interested in post-humanism. Mm-hmm. Curtis Yarvin is sort of um, a slightly different figure, but also interested in 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 what comes next, what comes after the civilization that we have right now. Mm-hmm. Basically, I think what unites them is an interest in the post-human, um, and I think that is also likely what is is what's so appealing about Lovecraft in that he he writes about, he writes fiction that's, I would say, anti-humanist. There's no humanism in what he writes. There's no, there's no belief that, that we can create um, something better or that it will have any meaning if we do so. Mm, right. Uh, that the future should be something beyond our own little insignificant ant-like existence. Sure. Yeah. Is that somewhat satisfying as an answer? We should mention where where these guys sit on like a left right uh, political spectrum, as well as the fact that they're extremely pessimistic about or about yeah about humans. Um, so Nick Nick Land is a guy I've not read. No, I've not read anything by him, but I know him by way of um, one Mark the the writer Mark Fisher, who was also interested in the future, but was your fairly generic British academic a Marxist sort of worldview and he, he and Nick were I don't know if pals is the right word but they were in the same sort of uh, scene together in the 90s and it was a sort of a discussing or criticizing the capitalism of the 90s and they had a real interest in whatever the word cybernetics means I mean maybe that I think that word is I think it's in... like listening to house music and posting <laughs> on the internet <laughs> that's yeah. the one yeah the, yeah the 90s internet yeah and the, I guess either Nick I think I think that what, what the the thing everyone types into Google is what happened to Nick Land because as he got older, he moved off to Taiwan and then Shanghai and became a really hardcore reactionary and racist. Basically, I don't know whether that came before or after the move to Asia, but that's where he's at now. You can you can look at him tweeting racist boomer stuff on his Twitter yeah. these days. And Curtis Yarvin, as well as being interested in the future, what is it? He wants like a corporate monarchy. Or something, or at least that's what oh, he well, first wrote about neo cameralism. But I, I not, not, um, I, I could not explain that. But yeah. I mean, they're sort of different figures. Nick Land has had some interesting thoughts, but if you, 
if you read what Nick Land wrote in like the nineties and then you see what he is now, it's like, what happened to this guy? This, yeah. this guy was seemingly brilliant. And now he's on Twitter, like posting like things that like my uncle gets forwarded to him. Like it's, it's, it's quite, quite sad. But I can see that he's still interested in time and the future, even if, yeah, like you said, there's more drivel there now. Listen, but as somebody who's interested in time in the future, he's sure concerned about like um, <laughs> culture wars. <laughs> yeah, about culture war stuff. I mean, it's 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 quite dull, but um, I think like I think there's like a sort of a wing of neo reaction that that comes sort of out of the writing of those two men. Who you know, Yarvin himself is not particularly racist. I mean, he's um, he's as he said famously, he's not allergic to the stuff. I mean, these are not people who would um, be too precious about like um, expressing their admiration for fascist regimes of the past or the present. But I don't think that's what they, I don't think that's what they get out of Lovecraft. I don't think they, they love Lovecraft for his racism, but more for his, his just complete rejection of, of like humanity Mm. and modernity in general i think right yeah born born in the wrong generation again although maybe maybe for these guys the wrong generation is they they want to be farther ahead in their particular vision of the future yeah i was i was having uh, shower thoughts about this because we've talked about these things a little before and it's such you could get in such a mire talking about this stuff and you could also be you could go in the opposite direction i could just caveat myself a million times and talk about nothing but i'd rather i'd rather say something so the thing that occurred to me is I'm quite a pessimistic guy myself. I'm very, very worried about the future. And I don't hate humankind, but I don't think we're particularly, I think I think we think a bit too much of ourselves. And it's kind of sad that if I'm looking for something in the intellectual political world, that's the guys who have the monopoly on pessimism. Ligotti uh, in that book, uh, Conspiracy Against the Human Race, he, he says this much, something, he says something like only 1% of, or less than 1% of the human population are real pessimists because nobody else wants to hear it if you really if you really take serious the idea that like we are fucking useless and we should all be turned into robots or we shouldn't make babies and we should let ourselves fade out you know unsurprisingly people don't want to hear it but especially in the sort of my my sort of if, if you want to put me somewhere on the political spectrum somewhere on the left people want to moan about whoever's in power but no one wants to hear someone say like everything is hopeless, the world's crap. And yeah, these guys, these neo-reaction guys, that seems to be sort of their wheelhouse. Maybe just because they feel really alienated. Maybe they really believe it. But it's kind of a shame that they've monopolized pessimism. I think that's what I what I react to in Lovecraft that I that I don't really like, you know? I um um there's that I think Welbeck in his book about Lovecraft summed it up the best. I mean he's he's sort of like on the same wavelength. You know, he says, the character of Lovecraft fascinates us partly because his system of values is entirely opposed to ours. Fundamentally racist, openly reactionary, he glorifies Puritan inhibition and quite evidently finds repellent any open display of eroticism. Resolutely anti-commercial, he despises money, considers democracy to be pure folly, progress and illusion. The word liberty, so dear to Americans, elicits from him only a gloomy sneer. Mm. You know, that's, you know, I, that's, I think what I find so, uh, you know, I'm quite the opposite of, of you that I'm, 
uh, generally an happy optimist. Guy. Yeah, yeah, the absolutely, absolutely happy. Twenty-four hours a day, seven days a week. I think that I think that's what what I react to in Lovecraft that I don't like, and I think that's what what people who are interested in like posthumanism are are so enamored of that he that he sums it up so well of 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 what they're thinking. Right. Okay. Probably probably any further discussion in this area, we'd probably just be repeating ourselves. I imagine some listeners might have some thoughts. I'd love to hear them. You know, the social media, that's what that's for. Uh, let's let's march on. So we've, we've talked about what a, how fucked Lovecraft's worldview was, but there's, and a lot of that is in his letters rather than in his writing. It's, um, some of it's there in his writing, but the, the thing, I think the reason people are still interested in talking about him, aside from, you know, people on the lunatic fringes of, of the internet, the reason he, he's still talked about in mainstream or is maybe still right now having his resurgence in mainstream uh, discussion of his writing is that he's a really a master stylist. He doesn't, you know, he's not just writing monster stories. He's got a very distinctive style. Like we were saying, for some people, it's purple prose. For other people, it's a amazing sentence construction. Never, never mind atmosphere, but his ability to like build the tower of bricks before it falls over, you know, before the sentence gets too ornate and crazy and loses its effect. He, he seems to have a mastery of just taking it uh, to as far as it can. We, we've said already that it seems like in Bakwe that's been pulled off. I guess Ubmab, in the, have you read any of Ubmab's original Chinese? Because the translator yeah. mentioned it a bit. Yeah, I actually pulled it up uh, yesterday because I thought you might ask me if I've if I've read anything, and I Excellent. I read the the original uh, flock of Bahui story in, in in Chinese as well. This is something I know nothing about, like Chinese syntax, because all the Chinese I learned was spoken, very simple sentences. So I, there's nothing I can say. What can you say? Um, the thing is, like Chinese is is very basically modern Chinese literature is very given to descending into purple prose. It's just, it's something that a lot of translators will excise, you know, snip out of the writing because there's so many, um, so many writers, basically every modern writer will, will, will descend into it. Um, it it's, it's a, it's a perfect language for that. Mm. And there's, there's, there's a lot of that in, in, um, in the stories by Umab. And the translators do a perfect job of, of not imitating the Chinese purple prose, but sort of getting the, the sentiment, the, the vibe of, yeah. of how it would be. It's absolutely, I think it's quite a, a really great job that they did in, 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 in translating purple prose from, from one extreme in, in Chinese to the extreme in, in English. Um, it's always interesting to me when uh, I read a translator who's, you know, espousing their thoughts on how you should translate a language, especially uh, Chinese to English, because there's such a jump there. Um, and the stuff that I think seems the most sensible to me or rings the most true to me are the, the translators who say you should replicate the effect. That's the most important thing. And it seems like that's kind of what you've described. The translators have put something together that is, mm, it's not just a good recreation of Lovecraft. It's also not been pulled out of the thin air. It's there. Yeah, in a way, I think they've, I think they've done what every translator should be trying to do, but most don't do. You know, I'm, I always rail against academics are the only people translating Chinese literature, which is true. They tend to take a very academic approach that it should be somewhat transparent and should kind of maintain something of, of what's underneath. 
Whereas I don't think the two translators here have really attempted to do that. And in sort of somewhat abandoning that, they've created a, a something that's amazing to read. It is incredibly enjoyable and preserves the the sentiment and the mood and the the language, you know, the the tone, let's say, of the of the original. Sure. Um, this is a slightly random thing, but um, I've been wanting to say this to, to someone for a while. I so speaking of mythoses and extended universes and translators who go a bit above, above and beyond, I noticed a thing in two books translated by Nikki Harmon uh, recently. Uh, one was Happy Dreams, the Japanese book, and the other, I think, I'm not certain, but I'm pretty sure it was Book of Sins uh, by Chin Chi Wo. Um, but I, I may be misremembering, but I'm pretty sure it's that one. She, she created a turn. Um, I've actually forgotten the original Chinese. You might need to help me. But you know the guys who go around, they're sort of something similar to the police. They go around closing uh, hawker, hawker stalls. Chongguan? Yeah, I think it's the, the Chongguan guys. I Chongguan, think she, like city management people. Yeah, I believe it was them. She called them scout patrols with an acronym, S-C-O-U-T. Mm. And she even made up the acronym in English and told you what it spelled. And that popped up again in Chen Shi War. And I said, like, oh, so there's a Nikki Harmon mythos that the, <laughs> the Chongguans are always called the scout patrol. That's cool. And then maybe the her acolytes will take that up and use her same vocabulary, you know? There's there's a weird thing like like Howard Goldblatt has translated all sorts of writers from like um, Shandong countryside writers to like Taiwanese woman writers and it all sorts of reads the same and he uses a lot of weird language like one of them I found was he always referred to something called blue bottle flies which oh that's a British English yeah but he uh, he uses that's there's some phrase he uses everything and you can find these little phrases right. that unite his works all across the all across the, the howard goldblatt mythos huh i'm gonna watch out for that now that's a fun thought and do you think he's do you think other translators have picked up on that at all do you unconsciously do you think anyone i think i think so because like you 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 want like when you translate something like when you translate Japanese, i would always want to sort of get close to what people had done before so like thinking of a reader who goes to the next book they would you would want them to know what chungguan is you know like to you know if i if i worked on another book i would think about using that nikki Harmon um scout patrols uh, invention yeah yeah i guess there, there might have been other ones but that one really stands out because it's um it's so obviously well if you're thinking of it as a translation it's you it couldn't possibly be from chinese so it must be a translation is but yeah, um, let's let's not get hung up on that. Next question. So this is um, a callback to the episode I did with uh, Emily Jin on the video game Gujian, which um, is like totally a Chinese wuxia game. It's going out of its way to give a sort of a world wandering around RPG game to, I guess, Chinese people or at least people interested in China. Um, but Gujian Three has something the first two games doesn't have. It has the it has these like. I don't know, like monsters from another dimension or something. And they're clearly a more modern sort of creation. They don't seem to have any sort of historical reference. And when we were talking about that, he said, yeah, these basically seem to be uh, like a Lovecraftian thing, a Western sort of thing. And they've been sort of transplanted into the game and they kind of fit and they kind of don't. But um, I was I, I was thinking about that after reading Ba Hui. I was, because... And maybe this thought was put in my head by the translators because they mentioned that what some of the only literary 
never mind horror literary heritage that goes way back into dynastic China, like where writers were writing fiction and stories for enjoyment for you to read, where the uh, weird stories by writers like uh, Ling, um, strange stories. And sure enough, one of one of the um, only very old stories I've done on the show that wasn't one of the four great, great classic novels, uh, Women in the Carriage uh, with Yulin Wang, Che Zhong Mutsu. So I'm wondering yeah. actually if there is a little bit of like a drain, like a weird fiction pedigree in China. Um, yeah, I forgot to mention as well, I've, I've learned a little bitty more about like the, I don't know if cosmology is the right word, but the gods and the demons that are in sort of traditional Chinese folklore mythology. And through contact with Jia Pinghua and his La Shong, actually, I've learned a little bit about the Shanghai Jing, this weird beast theory that describes all these strange like chimera-like creatures, like uh, a horse with a man's face or a man with a horse's face or, or what have you. And I'm reading Beijing Coma right now, which has quotes for, or describes passages. And it describes like these gods who live in the great Western wastes who are, they're just corpses, but they seem to be gods and are alive in some way. And I'm like, oh, this is really weird stuff. Like, it's maybe not Lovecraftian, but it's definitely, you could definitely call it weird with the big W and you wouldn't, you wouldn't be completely wrong. So do you think there's anything we could say there or is it just convergent evolution on the same sort of weird feeling? I think you could, but I think it would be somewhat specious. Um, mm. Like, it's interesting, this, this book actually, The Flock of Bahui actually makes reference to Shanghai Jiang somewhere in there it's like one of the books that the that the archaeologist was was reading um you know there's there's a a pair of translators john branscom and you izzy e izzy you who have tried to promote the idea that that some of those jirguai stories actually have that sort of cosmic terror cosmic Mm. horror that that lovecraft talks about um they call they they're really interested in this writer called Ji Yun, who who writes these sort of um, they're very short, like, almost like flash fiction. They call it weird nonfiction. Um, mm. There's like a a story about uh, like a man. Uh, there's a man walking down the street and he has a cage, and inside is a small man, and um, that that small man is also carrying a cage and inside that cage is a small man etc 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 and it's like an example of of jerkwai uh, uh, as cosmic horror it's sort of like contrasted with chanxi which are like the legends of mm-hmm. of of you know the ancient times and it's yeah. supposed to be like ontologically upsetting you know something that that gives you like some sort of creeps on a like a deep and cosmic level yeah i think it's kind of bs but um it's like we were saying about the mud floods it's an interesting little conceit to send your mind yeah Hmm. it's kind of a fun way to read them but Hmm. i I don't know if they were really intended that way in in the first place but it's kind of a fun way to read it so i mean no harm no foul sure they they have some really interesting translations up if you if you google john branscom and and eu they had some translations of Ji-Yun up on, on Samovar, which are promoting that idea of like of of Ji-Yun as, as Lovecraftian horror. Interesting. If anyone wants to look at that. Um, I'll try to remember to put a note to that in the show links because it interests me. So I'd like it on my post. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. Um, one last thing about frameworks, given that I mentioned uh, Mark Fisher before. So he, he he's no longer with us. He committed suicide. Um, but one, I think one of his later books before he did that was a book on the weird and the eerie. And it's, it's pretty short. I don't think it's a masterwork or anything, but it gives you an interesting way to split up, um, yeah, categorize these sort of weird stories because weird fiction is not just Lovecraft. The Another sort of a root of it is, are the old ghost stories by writers like M.R. James, uh, is another one, one I recollect, yeah, Benson. Uh, th there's a slightly more modern writer who I really like called Robert Aikman, who's more in that weird ghost story sort of, I don't know, lineage than the sort of cosmic evil, uh, horrible uh, universe that Lovecraft writes about. And I was thinking like, oh yeah, it would actually be helpful to have some kind of a uh, critical way to categorize them rather than just thinking about their roots. And yeah, the weird and the eerie kind of gives you that. Um, so people in layman's terms, what Mark Fisher says the weird is, is when something should not be, either it's in the wrong place or it's a bit of a chimera. It has things that should not be together. And it, ha it can be kind of a positive thing because it imagines things that normally would not be permitted or, or, or what have you, but it should kind of be, or it can be, I think another property of the weird is it can often be disgusting. It can provoke a disgust reaction. Whereas the eerie, rather than being too many things, it's an absence. Uh, the eerie is a weird feeling of, I don't know, like, I can't remember exactly, but like maybe something that should have been there isn't there, or there's a, an absence that has a presence by its conspicuousness or a feeling that you're in a world where everything that happened already happened. And the eerie can also be a sort of a, it's not a liberating feeling, but there's a sort of a pleasure to it. Maybe in the same way that horror and Lovecraft can have a sub, hit a sublime high. There's something nice about being in like, I don't know, a big eerie frosty field just before the sun goes down or something. It's not entirely unpleasant. And um, I think that came into my head because your blog, you were looking at a writer who described uh, Lovecraft as the world being a world without us and I was thinking oh yeah world without us sounds like it might be quite peaceful sounds like it might fit the category of the eerie um so before we get into the miscellaneous questions would which one of those two do you think fits these four stories best I think it's probably the weird things that should not be but I could also see the eerie creeping in at other points yeah I think it's I think it's weird and and eerie you know, it's interesting you brought up that that world without us. I mean, that that sort of sums up what what makes it so what makes Lovecraft and and possibly these stories so horrible is that you know, there's no evil forces arrayed against us. It's just it's just it the world is it, it doesn't matter. There's there's not there's no good or there's no evil. Um, it's like, I, I don't know, somebody compared it to like a, a great white shark. If you, if you wade out into the, uh, into the warm waters of the Gulf of Mexico, when you get swallowed up by a great white shark, there was no, there was no evil behind it. It was impersonal. Yeah. It was just completely impersonal. And that, and that's what makes it so, so, so horrible. Yeah. Mm. I sometimes imagine what it would like to be an animal because basically any animal that's not a pet and doesn't. I don't know, unless you're a bird in the area with no sparrow hawks and lots of bird feeders, it's got to stop being an animal. Um, the world really is out to get you. You haven't got a house. In most places, it's either too hot or too cold most of the year. 
you're constantly even if you're a predator you're you know it's you're constantly on the hunt for food and you know we're we're only a few steps away from that the world i don't know i probably have bringing been bringing up video games on the show too much but your health bars are always going down never goes up and unless you're eating something else that used to be alive <laughs> on on that note um yeah let's skip to the uh, if this book was a drink since we're talking about consuming things uh if flakabahwe was a soft hard or hot drink and uh, what do you think it would be um well what have i been drinking this during this whole uh chat is uh hakushu single malt japanese whiskey uh-huh. and uh sugar-free monster energy drink so i mean that that um I think that's a what should not be. That's the weird. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that it, it, honestly, it should be some like, um, you know, some fishy brew of of bones and uh, aborted fetuses. I mean, some horrible, horrible thing. But if not, then single malt Japanese whiskey and uh, sugar-free Monster Energy drink. You got it sugar-free. You're looking after yourself. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Cool. Um, does that relate to the stories, or is that just a good thing to drink when reading them? Just, a, just a good thing to drink, and I mean, and things that shouldn't be together. Yeah. But I mean, I don't have a I have a good answer for this. Mm. I think I'll go back to the brew of of. Uh, how about some bone broth? Both that's that. good. That's yeah. a good thing to sip while while it's, while reading these stories. Yeah, some strong bone broth. Yeah, or some some Qingdao from the basement underneath the the brewery. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, this is one setting we didn't mention. Uh, the story set in a Han Chinese place, Qingdao, is also a place where there's some layering of time there because it's been in, uh, I guess, dynastic Chinese hands, Republican Chinese hands, Jap- German hands, Japanese hands, uh, Chinese communist hands. Even if you I visit, visited that brewery and they have, so they have all those um, military stories of how it was, the thing was passed back and forth. Then it was nationalized under the communists, and then it was put onto the, the market. So, and that really reads as a metaphor for for Qingdao. So, even even that is a sort of a weird place in that it's not a horrible place, but it is a strange mishmash of time. Yeah, I get what you're saying, and and all these and all of these regimes were opposed to the to the strange, you know, cult activity, the occult activity that was going on in the, in the basement. Right yeah. there, you go. I wonder what that tells us. Don't know. Won't uh, won't waste any more time trying to figure it out. Um, so I skipped over what usually comes before the drink of the day, and that's the Chinese word of the day, um, or what, from character phrase, whatever you like. Does anything jump out at you? Um, how about the Call of Cthulhu in Chinese role playing game? Yeah. Okay. Cool. Xie shen hu huan. Xie shen hu huan, which is like xie shen. Is like evil gods. Hu Huan is the call of Xie Shen Hu Huan. Okay. Xie yeah. Shen Hu Huan. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So if you want to play, if you want to, if you want to search up uh, the Ring of Wonder and go to the uh, Xie Shen Hu Huan message board, you'll you'll find a whole new universe. I can imagine. Yeah. Um, right. Last miscellaneous slot, it's your self-promo slot. So you mentioned you had two translations in the works, but I guess those aren't available to buy yet. Is that right? No, I mean I'm in a in a in a in a sort of holding pattern where I've translated a bunch of books and just waiting for them to come out. And mm. they should be out in 
2021. You should be able to get the the Jiaping book by that time. I mean, hopefully, you know, speaking of deep time, I mean, somebody will be listening to this, you know, 100 years in the future. So if you are listening to this 100 years in the future, you've got a whole bibliography of my work to, to go through. But uh, if you're listening to it a year in the future, you could find the Tsai Chong Da Vessel Memoir, the Mai Jia book that's coming out, and uh, especially the, the Jia Pinghua book that's coming out. What is the Mai Jia book? Because there's a few other of his novels you can get in English just now. The Mai Jia book is really incredible. Um, it's, it's a story about, basically starts in the 1920s, 1930s. It's a story of about a, about a guy who's alternately called the Colonel or the Eunuch. He ends up joining the KMT and becomes like a secret agent fighting against the, the, the Japanese and their collaborators. And he carries with him a, a horrible secret that he covers up perhaps by, by going along with the, the eunuch story. In fact, he's not a eunuch and he quite the opposite, in fact. But I don't, I don't want to spoil the story or get into a description of why he's not a eunuch. Okay, right. Yeah, what you said about um, if you're listening in the future, if it's 100 years, uh, the listener will have found the USBs and hard drives. I will have buried around uh, the Tayside and Fife regions. The internet will be gone, of course. Civilization will have collapsed. And I'll be living with the fish people in the River Tay if I'm still alive. A horrible vision of the future. Right. So our last section, further reading questions. I only know of one translated Chinese horror book, and I don't really think it's in this sort of wheelhouse. So my recommendations probably would have been English language stuff. Do you, what about you? Do you have anything you could recommend, either in English or Chinese? Hmm. Yeah, there's not a lot. You know, around the same time I was reading this, I went back to Lu Xuan and read Diary of a Madman. Oh, yeah. And sort of got, got the idea that, you know, jettisoning any political meaning from it it's a pretty good horror story mm. you know cannibals are, are eating people and and this guy is aware of it but i would say if you like this if you can get through this you could probably stand arthur Merceau's party members i don't like it but um probably you it might be right up your alley if this appealed to you and that's it's available via the same publisher. I'll, yeah. I'll recommend, um, well, Mark Fisher's Weird in the Year. It's, uh, it's uh, not, too, not too hard of a read. It's interesting. And he talks about a really good Manchester band, Paul, who um, all my Mancunian friends would want me to promote. Um, but if, if you guys want to... Who is it? The Happy Mondays? What are we talking about? Uh, the Fall. Uh, the Fall. Apparently, okay. Yeah, apparently they have a, a weird with a big W song or two. Yeah, a Lovecraft story I'd really recommend is The Whisper in Darkness. Uh, that's, I mean, it should be, you should be able to read it online, I think, somewhere, but it'll be available in, in print too. And he's really not anything to do with anything we talked about, but anything by Robert Aitman you can read is bloody awesome. If I got to recommend a Lovecraft story, it would be The Cats of Ultar, which is about <laughs> cats killing a bunch of people. It's a very good story. It sounds weird with a small W, not a big W. Yeah, I mean, it basically some farmers it's about why a, a town has a law against killing cats a farmer was killing cats and a mysterious orphan arrived carrying a, a jet black kitten 
and he catches wind of this farmer who is carrying out a, a, a cat holocaust and intervenes and sets the, the local strays against this farmer. They very quickly devour him and his wife, leaving a polished skeleton behind. And the local, you know, constabulary decides we should have a law against killing cats. But read it for yourself. Now, this is the last thing I'll end on. Uh, this might be a complete dud. Have you heard of a kid's book called Millions of Cats? No. Okay, I hadn't either, but it was in, it's a, I think it's an American book or something. Lovecraft and cats. Apparently it is actually a thing. Didn't know. Yeah, those kind of guys always like cats, you know? Mm. You have to be a you have to be an optimist to like dogs. Those kind of nihilists always like cats. If you if you meet a cat person, I mean you're not gonna get along with them. Be careful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, on that note, I will end the episode now that we've given some <laughs> ample warning to the listeners. So we have reached the end of the show. So all that remains for me now is the plugs and then wishing you farewell. So as I said, if you'd like to get in touch, either to say lovely things or to berate me for uh, abusing history for my own ends, then please use the social media. Uh, you can find the show on Instagram. Uh, the handle is Truchific, T-R-C-H-F-I-C. On Twitter, I just use my own one, so it's at Angus Likes Words. Facebook exists, although I don't use it for much. It just sort of auto-shares the episodes. What is What does exist and what is good and what I'm hoping to get more use out of is the show's Discord. You can talk to myself and other fans of the show, um... There's an invite link in the show notes, or you can just ask me for it, and I will throw it your way. Now, if you'd like to support the show tangibly, which means with money, uh, to help me cover hosting costs and all that, then there's actually several places you can do that. They're all linked to on the support page on the podcast homepage, uh, or you can go direct to the various uh, platforms. So probably the best one's Patreon, patreon.com slash truchific. Uh, there's dozens and dozens of bonus episodes up there, all accessible from the minimum price, just a dollar a month, more if you are a lovely person who really loves the show. Um, you can also uh, donate just one off through PayPal and buy me a coffee. Um, if you want to buy me a proverbial coffee or more likely to be honest beer then that's where you can do that another little thing I'd like to plug just because it's quite cool it's a thing I'm going to start doing and I've done it for the younger uh, Strange Beasts of China episode I'm going to make little um, animated versions of the YouTube uploads of the episodes just with little um, spectrograms um, so it'll be especially good for the interview parts because we'll have one for each guest so if you go on youtube and find the uh, younger episode you'll see in the interview section me jan and jeremy all have our own little um wobbly <laughs> wobbly voice waveform lines moving on from silly things i'm gonna tell you the best way to spread the word about the show and that's by actually telling people in real life if you know anyone who's a big fan of i don't know chinese things or or literature or chinese literature then tell them about the show uh, tell your friends tell your family tell your teachers tell your guide through the mountains of madness and please do tell the brain that you keep in a jar beneath your bed you know the one that you take out at midnight when no one can see you and no one can hear what you're whispering please tell the brain because I think it would, you know, potentially be a Patreon supporter and I really need those uh, those brain dollars. But anyway, until you tune in again, it's IGN.